there was a theologian in the, uh, who did much of his work in the first half of the 20th century named uh, Karl Barth, and uh, he and I definitely would not agree on all, all uh, every point of theology and doctrine, but, uh, but he was an incredibly, incredibly intelligent person, and, and I think even without question was the most influential theologian of his time. Um, one thing that he is credited with saying that, that was very apt in his own time, but, but also for our time today, is, is this. He said, he said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. And now, obviously, physical newspapers are, are less and less common in our world today, but, but we get the point of what he's saying, right? He, he was highlighting the importance of Christians being knowledgeable both about the truth of the Bible, but also about what was taking place in the world at that time. And, and of course, what is taking place in the world ought to be interpreted through the lens of the Bible, not the other way around. And so, so my attempts to, to read my newspaper today uh, generally lead me to engage with national and international news from three main sources, uh, primarily, is, is where I turn. Um, first, I, I engage pretty heavily with uh, World News Group, and if I had to describe World News Group, I would say that it's kind of like Newsweek, but from a biblical perspective. I think their, their tagline is uh, sound journalism based in facts and the Bible. Um, and, and, and so they have a regular magazine that comes out, which we subscribe to as a church, and the magazines are in the, office, uh, the library. And so I would encourage you, if you've never grabbed one of those, to do so, because they're really good. Um, but in addition to that magazine, they've got podcasts and website articles and all kinds of things now. But but I've found them to be very well, very well-rounded in what they report on, and biblically fair when they report on it. So World News Group is one that I turn to regularly. Um, second, I, I also make it my habit in the office each morning to do a quick check of both the CNN and Fox News websites uh, by taking note of the stories and details shared on on uh, by those two news sources that, that, that may connect with both the right and left sides politically, uh, I feel like it helps me keep a good pulse on, on the larger world around me. And I would encourage you, to all of us this morning, to make sure that, uh, that, that our news sources are varied, right? That, and I'm not saying you have to agree with every news source you read, but, but I think it's important to engage with different sources and different viewpoints as we kind of take in this information about our world. And, and one of the things I've learned through my attempts to stay up to date on society is that there is an increasing hostility in our society toward Christians who take a consistent stand on biblical truth. Um, maybe not to the same degree here in Eureka or in Woodford County like there might be in other places, but hostility is more and more common. There are, there are truths presented in the Bible which our society doesn't just disagree with, but sees as dangerous and destructive. 
And, and so there's hostility that comes uh, as a result of that. I, I read recently about a, a principal of a Christian high school who was receiving death threats to him and his family because he sent a memo to the families in the school reminding them of their policy regarding sexual ethics. And it was a policy that was based upon the Bible and not the prevailing views of society. And so it led to some incredible outrage. So maybe you came across this in the news as well. But So it's not just that our society disagrees more and more with biblical truth. It's becoming ever more hostile. And so the question then is, as believers who stand on biblical truth, what are we to do in such a context as that? How ought we respond as Christians who face this increased hostility? Is there anywhere in the Bible that we can turn to give us wisdom and insight into this matter? Um, Because I'm beginning my sermon that way, you can probably guess the answer is yes, right? That we're going to go somewhere. And because we've been studying Psalms all summer, you can probably even guess that it's somewhere in the Psalms that we're going to look this morning. Um, you know, we, we, could, we could list many people in the Bible who faced hostility of some kind because of their adherence to God and to his ways. And I would say without a doubt, one of the names at the top of the list would have to be King David. I mean, he faced threats that, that I know I cannot accurately imagine. I mean, I mean, we think about it. David faced threats from a guy named Goliath who towered over him. David faced threats from King Saul, even though David was loyal to him. David faced threats from his own son who sought to overthrow him. David faced threats from other nations seeking to invade and defeat Israel. So as we spend time in the Psalms today, and specifically in Psalm 11, we're going to read a psalm that David wrote in response to threats of some kind. Now, we're not told specifically which threat prompted his words in Psalm 11, But I'm not sure that it matters too much which specific threat it was. What does matter is that David faced threats in his life. And in Psalm 11, he directs us in how we ought to respond to those threats that we face in our lives. And and really, it's in, uh, as we look at the first three verses and especially the first line of Psalm 11, we're going to see what we ought to do in the face of those threats. So, so if you haven't turned there, I would encourage you to do that. Psalm chapter 11. And we're going to start by reading just the first three verses. Again, David writing, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And if you notice, the end of verse 1 and then verses 2 and 3 are in quotations, and that's assuming that's an advisor, somebody giving David advice. This is the report that they are giving to David. 
So I came across a story recently about a guy named Jedediah Morse. And his son Samuel, the creator of the telegraph, is probably the more famous Morse, Samuel Morse. But Jedediah was a pastor who lived during the American Revolution. And, and was, he was actually installed, uh, he lived during the American Revolution, but he was installed as the pastor of his church the same day and the same hour that George Washington was inaugurated as our first president. So just kind of an interesting tie there. But in what is probably Jedediah Morse's best-known sermon, uh, 10 years after he became their pastor, he spoke from Psalm 11 and, and specifically made a statement regarding verse 3, where it says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this is what Jedediah Morse said. He said, In proportion, as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in any nation— in the same proportion will the people of that nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom. I hold this to be a truth confirmed by experience. If so, it follows that all efforts made to destroy the foundation of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, the present our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them. So Jedediah Morse, over 220 years ago, looked at our country and, and he warned about what would happen if the foundations, which were built upon the truth of the Bible, were destroyed. And we look around today and we might say, yeah, it seems like those foundations are being destroyed. They're being chipped away at the least, if not completely removed, at worst. And if so, then what Jedediah Morse believes is that everything built upon them will fall also. Now, now please hear me. I'm not saying the church is in any danger of being destroyed or defeated. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus. I mean, we are part of the victorious bride of Christ but as for America, she is not given the same assurances that the bride of Christ is. The bride is promised to prevail. America, not so much. That, that, that promise is not given to us. And so it, it, we may look at our current situation in our country and ask the same question that David's advisors asked of him in Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, since there's an ever-increasing hostility toward God and toward the people of God in our society, what can you and I do? How ought we respond? Well, David's advisors said at the end of verse 1, flee, flee to the mountains. I mean, David, you know, <laughs> take wing, get out of here as fast as you can. Go someplace where you're going to find safety. I mean, I, I think the, the advisors here were, were talking about a physical fleeing to a physical mountain, right? Leave, leave the city where the enemy is going to come attack and go up to the mountain where you will be safe, where you can be hidden and protected. So they told him, you know, fly like a bird to your mountain. Isn't that a tempting response? Right? I mean, uh, and if we're honest, it's a response that we've probably all tried at some point to some degree 
in our life. I mean, I, I know I have tried that in different ways. Fleeing to the mountains for safety might look like physically fleeing from our society. It, it might look like making it our highest priority to remove ourselves and our families as much as possible from the threats of society. And the end result can, can become something akin to creating a, a bunker in which we hunker down and just ride it out until the storm blows over or we pass on from this life, you know, whichever one, whichever one would come first. And I'm not saying we ought to go out looking for hostility. I'm not saying we need to purposely put ourselves in harm's way, uh, especially with our children, right? There's an appropriate amount of protection that we ought to strive to provide for them from the threats of society. But circling the wagons so tightly that nothing can get in also means something else. It means nothing can get out either. Right? We, we don't just find society trapped on the outside, and it's not really trapped on the outside. We might think it is, but it's not. But it's not just society being trapped on the outside. We, we find ourselves trapped on the inside. And, and that kind of response makes it very difficult to fulfill the Great Commission, doesn't it? I mean, it, it makes it very difficult to be salt and light in the world, as we're called to be. And I, I was reflecting on on the, the theme of this school year that, that Pastor Tim has chosen for our students and youth group. And the theme is, is, is to be not of the world while yet they are in the world, right? In the world, but not of the world. And, and uh, I would say, li- listen, to, listen to Jesus' words about the Christian's place in a hostile world. And, and this is what Jesus prayed for his disciples just before his death. So in John chapter 17, Jesus says this, starting verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. I mean, you want to talk about some hostility? There's hostility present there. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And a little bit farther down, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, so when the wicked, you know, using the, the analogy of Psalm 11, when the wicked string their bow and knock their arrows and point them at us, Our response shouldn't be to flee to the hills by completely removing ourselves from society as much as possible. We are sent by Jesus into the world. We're sent to be that salt and light. So so one way that we might try to flee to the mountains is, is by removing ourselves as much as possible. But another form of fleeing might look like giving into society and shying away from biblical truth and righteous living. Uh, So instead of running and hiding, perhaps I can blend in with society and make it harder to get shot because I don't stand out. If you can't find me, you can't shoot me, kind of a thing. And, And individuals, churches, entire denominations in our society are fleeing in that way blending in with society. And again, if I can go back to Jesus' metaphor about salt, 
to withdraw from society, to try and remove ourselves, that's just like keeping salt in the shaker so that it doesn't get contaminated. You're just going to keep it right there. But it's not good for anything if it just stays in the shaker, right? You know, real salt just gets clumpy after a while and you can't even use it. It's, it's no good. To give in to society would be losing our saltiness. Jesus talks about that. And then he says it's not good for much of anything except to be trampled on. So we have to be willing to stand firm on what God reveals to us about himself in the Bible, not looking to flee by blending in as much as we can. And, and I think about the church in the first century. It's, it's interesting to read Roman historians who write about the church because the Romans considered Christians in the first century, century to be incestuous, atheistic cannibals. And the reason they thought that is because the Christians kept calling one another brother and sister. They would not bow down to Caesar, and they would eat the body and blood of Christ. And so they looked at that and said, you guys are crazy. Like, you're doing all these things that we would have no place for in our society. But those early Christians held fast to their faith, and they did it to such a degree that even though they were viewed that way by Roman culture, the gospel continued to spread, and the church continued to grow. So, so sometimes fleeing looks like separation, just getting out as much as possible. Sometimes fleeing looks like assimilation, just blending in as much as we can. But instead of fleeing through either of those methods, we ought to listen to David's response in Psalm 11. His advisors were saying, flee, Flee to the mountains. Get out of here. He didn't flee to the mountains. What did he do? Right, the first, first sentence in verse, uh, in verse 1. He says, In the Lord I take refuge. David said, I'm not fleeing. I'm taking refuge in the Lord. Now the threats he faced were real. No doubt. The, the arrows of the wicked that they were talking about, whether those are figurative or physical, they, they would have caused real damage. Think about verse 3. The foundations really were being destroyed. But in the midst of all that, David went to the Lord for refuge. Yeah, Psalm 46, which Dusty read earlier, it affirms God is our refuge and our strength. Uh, in Psalm 91, God is called our refuge and our fortress. And Proverbs 18 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're safe. Uh, Isaiah 25 calls God a refuge from the storm. Jeremiah called God his strength and his stronghold. It, it's all over scripture. There's no safer place to be than in the refuge of the Lord. We, we, we cannot come up with a better response than to take refuge in the Lord. But in case we aren't sure... In case we need a little convincing that taking refuge in the Lord really is better than fleeing to the mountains, David went on in Psalm 11 and he told us why. He told us why we ought to take refuge in the Lord, why that is the best response to threats. So look with me in verse 4 down through the end of the psalm. He said, The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. 
His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So why can we take refuge in the Lord? Why, why is that the best response? Well, first, and, and maybe most importantly, David says, God reigns. Verse 4, God reigns. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's sitting on his throne in heaven. I mean, when I, when I look around and see what is going on in American society, especially, I I can tend to become solely focused on America. And, and maybe I even broaden my horizon and look at, at the whole world, look at international news. But David urges me and urges us to look even broader than that, even higher than that. Because no matter what takes place on the earth or what takes place in our country, God reigns from his throne. God is reigning from his throne. Psalm 93 reminds us that God's throne is established from of old, from everlasting. God is the one who raises and lowers rulers. God is the creator of all. God is the sustainer of all. So it doesn't matter how many arrows the wicked fire upon us, God will not be shaken from his throne. It doesn't matter who rises and who falls. I mean, if, if we think there are some bad political uh, national rulers today in our world, we can look back through history and really find ones that were worse. But God still reigns. He reigned then. He reigns now. He reigns from on high, as David says. But even though he reigns from on high, right, even though his throne is in heaven, He's not removed from our situation here. It's not like, well, he's there. He doesn't really care about what's going on. You know, not at all. We see in the second part of verse 4, God's eyes see what is taking place. So not only does God reign, but God also sees. Now, when I open my own eyes, I can see some things, but, but my vision is... Is, is limited, right? And, you know, for all that I can see right now, there's vastly more that I cannot see, right? There are things in the spiritual realm that I cannot see. There's things outside this wall that I cannot see. My vision is limited. Not so with God. His eyes see. And, and I love at the, at the end of verse 4, I love how that expression isn't qualified right away, by saying what God sees. At first it just says, you know, uh, he sees, his eyes see. <laughs> God simply sees. He sees everything. And it, and it takes my mind to, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 10, where Ezekiel is, he's describing the point in which the glory of God departed from Solomon's temple before it was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And in Ezekiel's description of God's glory departing, which is a mind-bending description, I mean, it is hard to get our minds around, but he talks about cherubim and, and wheels within wheels that move without turning, 
which are covered with eyes all around. I mean, it is, it is an incredible description of the glory of God. But why are the wheels covered with eyes all around? Well, because God sees. He sees everything. He sees the children of men, as David writes here, all the children of men. That's a, that's a truth that I think has the potential to be either very comforting or very distressing, <laughs> doesn't it? The fact that God sees everything can be such a comfort or can be such a distress. And I think it all depends on whether a person is righteous or wicked, to, to utilize the terms of Psalm 11. So for the wicked person, that is a very distressing truth, that God sees everything. And what David goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, then, is that God reigns, God sees, but God also judges. He judges the wicked. And this is another reason we can take refuge in him. You know, the, the wickedness that was taking place then, the wickedness that is taking place in our society, in our world, it might seem like it's, it's running unchecked and unopposed, that there's just nothing that can be done about it. But David reminds us, again, God doesn't just reign, he doesn't just see, but he will judge. And, and the picture of judgment here is of raining down coals and fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Is there anything in the Bible that we can compare that to? Any, any past events that might might come to mind. When I think about that, I'm immediately taken to Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that was brought upon those. I mean, you want to talk about great wickedness in a city, a society that was hostile. I mean, God promised Abraham he would spare the entire city if 10 righteous people could be found in it, just 10. But there weren't 10 to be found, were there? And so in a city where wickedness had overtaken everyone except for Lot and his family, God saw and God also judged. And, and when we think about this truth communicated to us about God, we, we have to remember that it is, it is God who judges the wicked, not us. That's so important. God judges the wicked, not us. Because sometimes in a society that is hostile to us, rather than fleeing to the mountains, we might, we might dig in our heels and fight and, and strive. Uh, maybe we'll string our own bows and, and knock our own arrows, which gives society a taste of its own medicine. But, but when we are tempted to respond in judgment, we can't forget that it is God who judges, not us. Paul wrote these words to the believers in Rome who were living in a hostile society, most definitely. And this is what he wrote to them in uh, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's not necessarily how we want to respond, right? But it's not our job, again, as Christians, to give wickedness the judgment that it is due. We must let God take care of that. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Now, that doesn't mean that we buckle and we refuse to stand firm in the face of wickedness. That, that's not what it means. But, but we don't seek to met out judgment in response to wickedness. Taking refuge in the Lord means, uh, in part, that we allow God to be the judge. We leave it to his wrath while we feed our hungry enemy and give a drink to our thirsty enemy. That, that is a, a, a way that we take refuge in the Lord. We trust him with it. So, so we take refuge in the Lord because he reigns, he sees, he judges. And then lastly, what we see in verse 7 is he blesses. And, and specifically in verse 7, he blesses the righteous who live in righteousness. And, and, and I think Paul described some of those righteous deeds pretty well in Romans chapter 12 in what he was uh, saying to the church there. And, and, and I, th I think, too, there's a powerful connection when I reflect uh, uh, last week when we, when we looked at Psalm 82, where we talked about its call to justice for the weak and the fatherless and the afflicted and the destitute. I think there's a great connection there. The Lord loves when we carry out those righteous deeds in the strength of the righteousness that he gives to us. He loves it, David says here. He loves righteous deeds. And, and again, those righteous deeds do nothing to earn us salvation. It's not about, not about uh, becoming a saved individual. But David says there's reward there. There's reward as we live out this righteousness. And he says the reward is beholding the face of the Lord. The reward is God himself. I mean, let's think about that. <laughs> when our trust and hope is in God, and, and when that trust and hope is revealed through how we live, we can expect to be blessed with the very presence of God in our lives. God himself is our reward. And I, I, um, I've been reading a, a, a book on preaching by John Piper, but I came across this quote in the book that I think echoes this promise so well. Uh, Piper says, Faith is always, at its best, receiving God as our reward, not just our rescuer. Our delight, not just our deliverer. Right? And can't we kind of fall into that sometimes, looking at, at God as just our rescuer and just our deliverer? God, I'm in, this, I'm in this threatening society. It's more hostile to me. I just, I need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. And we do, 
And God does those things, but it's not just about that. It's about God being our reward, not just our rescuer, our delight, not just our deliverer. So we can trust God and have faith that he will be our refuge in times of threat. There's no question about that. But we'll also find that when we rest in him, when we take refuge in him, that we are given the blessing of beholding his face, being with him as well. And what a blessing that is, not just the protection in his refuge, but his presence being there too. I mean, we've, we've heard about this fight or flight response that humans have in, in response to threats, right? Um, I think in Psalm 11 that David addresses both. He addresses both uh, fight and flight in the face of threats from the wicked. To take flight and flee to the mountains, we see, isn't the way to go. Uh, to fight back and respond with judgment isn't the way to go either. Instead, I think what David encourages us is to respond in faith. So you might say we as Christians have three options, fight, flight, or faith. And as we see, the first two really aren't what we're called to, that it's that third one. Our, our faith in God in the face of threats ought to lead us to take refuge in him for all the reasons that David listed here in Psalm 11. You know, the, the hostility that we see in our society toward Christians, that, that can be something that increases stress and anxiety, doesn't it? I mean, we can just kind of feel that at times. But I wanted to end this morning by adding Paul's words to the words of David in Psalm 11. Paul spoke to the church in Philippi, and, and he used different expressions than David did, but, but he communicated the same truth. And so this is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we come to God in prayer, seeking refuge in him, he gives us his peace. And, and a benefit of this peace is that our hearts and our minds are guarded. But it makes me wonder, what does this peace guard our hearts and our minds from? I mean, it's a comforting thought, but, but, but what is it? What does it guard our hearts and our minds from? And, and when I consider Psalm 11, I think, Part of what it means is it guards our hearts and our minds from the arrows of the wicked. That when we take, that, when we take refuge in the Lord, there's peace in that, that that guards us. Protection doesn't come through fleeing to the mountains. It doesn't come through taking judgment in our own hands. It only comes through that peace experienced in the refuge of the Lord. <clears throat> now, we're not promised this life will be easy, Right? We're not promised that. We're not promised that the arrows of the wicked will never hit their target. We're not promised that the wicked will be judged righteously in this life, even. But we are promised that God reigns from his throne. 
And we are promised that God sees all that takes place. We are promised that God will judge the wicked. And we are promised that the righteous will be blessed by God's presence. And so for those reasons, in the face of a society that's increasingly hostile toward us, we ought to choose faith in God, taking refuge in him rather than fight or flight. We have a wonderful Lord in whom we can take refuge, and it's exactly what we ought to do in the face of the threats that are before us. Would you stand with me? Let's come to God and and give him thanks that we can take refuge in him and pray that he would keep leading us in that as well. Heavenly Father, we come to you in some ways no different than our brothers and sisters throughout history that have faced hostility just simply due to being your sons and daughters, simply to walking in the way that you have that you have directed them. So God, help us to know that we're, we're not alone in this, we're not unique in this. But remind us, like you've reminded your people throughout the centuries, that refuge is only found in you. That we're not going to truly find it anywhere else. And I thank you that it can be found in you that we can rest in your refuge, that we can trust you with all that takes place around us, knowing that your will is being carried out and that the ultimate end is the new heaven and the new earth where all creation proclaims you as king. We so look forward to that day, a day when hostility will be nothing more than a distant memory. But God, in the here and now, guide us. Bring us closer to yourself. Help us to encourage one another to take refuge in you. God, I thank you that you are that fortress, that strong rock, and that our faith in you is not misplaced in any way. We give you praise for that. We're so thankful. We pray this in your name. Amen.